This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by our Africa editor Ed Reed and our digital journalist Hamish Penman. How are we today, guys? Has anyone been dodging questions about attending any garden parties? I've got to really crack down on my garden party habit. You know, mm. you just think it's a work <laughs> event and then just turns out it's a party. I mean, I don't I don't even know what the difference Where is. Where does the office end and the garden begin? Uh, that's my question. You know, this, this, let's have this, this broader jurisdiction now. If it said bring your own booze, you know, bring your own booze to the office. That sounds like know? a work event. That sounds like a work event to me. Yeah, yeah. Hamish, you're suspiciously quiet over there. Well, wow, just as a big fan of offices and gardens, <laughs> I'm really in danger here. So, that's well, I, I and just... and bring your own booze. My goodness, let's and, uh... and yeah, and bringing my own booze. I mean, I do remember Ryan brought some booze into the office uh, for Mark Lammy's leaving do. So are we in are we in trouble now? I mean, everything is freed oh, oh, up, oh, oh, but, oh, oh, but who oh, knows? Sh- sh- shut up, shut up, Hamish, shut up. No one needs to know about that. No, uh, no, yeah, we're, we're, we're fine, we're fine. Uh, yeah, moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's been a it's been a weird week at Energy Voice Towers. We've had, um, well, we've had we've had horse content this week. We've had rogue YouTubers and the like. Um, but we're not going to talk about any of that. Um, I'm going to kick us off with news uh, about the Mariner Field in the North Sea. Mariner, for those who don't know, east of Shetland, started up in 2019. After a £6.4 billion investment from Equinor, and that's probably, I think it's the largest we had in the North Sea for about a decade, possibly the last large platform to be installed in the region, we'll we'll see about that. But two years on, uh, this week, as I say, the operator Equinor has downgraded recoverable resources by a third to about 180 million barrels, and that has led to a £1.3 billion pound impairment on the value of Mariner, which Equinor is going to recognise in their Q4 results next month. And this is the latest in what would seem to be, I guess, I guess a flurry. Is flurry too strong a word? Yeah, I'm going to go with flurry, a flurry of kind of issues for the UK sector. We've obviously had Shell pull out of the Cambo project in the west of Shetland. We've had a non-commercial appraisal at Glengorm, as far as we're aware. Glengorm, of course, being the largest discovery in a decade or so it was hailed when it was found a few years ago. And we had this um, appraisal campaign that found no commercial hydrocarbons from CNOC. And obviously we had, uh, I guess, controversy for oil and gas in and around the COP26 climate conference too. So this particular problem, this downgrade, that follows data from uh, the Mariner Fields two production reservoirs. Heimdall and Maureen, and they'd expected in and around 50-55,000 barrels of peak production per day. Um, and now two years on, and I spoke to, to Equinor's UK boss, uh, Arne Gertner, who said that, yeah, two years on at this point, it's clear that they're not really seeing anything like those numbers. And financially, it's clearly not really what they'd hoped it would be. Um, and I guess it's useful to put a little bit a better background on this too. I mean, Mariner was discovered in 1981, I think, thereabouts, and didn't reach first oil, as I say, until 2019. And that's because of the complexity. Uh, Equinor had to, you know, basically find and use new technology to get this field producing. Um, and yeah, I got to go out to Mariner in 2019 for first oil. It was kind of like a city in the middle of the sea. But as I say, it was a hugely complex project. And now as I say, they've had these problems. So it's still early. It's two years in, uh, and they still hope they can produce through to 2050, albeit with lower daily production. But this is, yeah, it's no doubt a blow for Equinor and 
for their partners. Do they give any indication as to as to what the problem was with uh, with the field? Why they uh, why they'd taken this? Was it was it just because of the uh, the complexity of the reservoir? Or was there was there some some other issue? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the the, res- the reservoir, the Heimdall reservoir, was the main kind of um, point that they were they were mentioning when we talked about it. Um, it seemed that there was a little bit of further uh, seismic data interpretation going on as well, but it seems like effectively, well, we've had two years of production from this reservoir now. They also had the startup in Q4, um, just um, the end of 2021, um, of the second reservoir, Heimdall, and that also kind of supported it. So it was a confluence of three kind of separate points that made them say, well, actually, yeah, this is unfortunately not working out the way that we had we had thought. So... I think after two years of 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 the main of the of the Heimdall Reservoir, um, I'm getting confused. No, it's the Morin Reservoir, and the Heimdall started up last year. Um, but basically, they've had two years of production from it, and I think there's enough data there for them to then say, "Well, actually, we can't. You know, we're going to have to downgrade this." I guess what's interesting, though, is that not everyone um, necessarily agrees with their interpretation, which is a bit of a a weird one for the North Sea. Anyway, we don't usually see partners speaking out against the main operator, um, Sicker Point Energy. Um, which is the firm behind Cambo. We've talked about previously uh, how Shell pulled out of the Cambo project in December. Sicker Point holds a 9% uh, stake in Mariner, another kind of very unwelcome and unfortunate blow for them after the Shell news. Uh, and they said, yeah, that, that Equinor is being premature in their in their figures here. They said they set up a working group between them uh, and the other joint venture partners in Equinor uh, this month, January, so very, very recently, um, to kind of assess the findings and next steps with results to come out in the summer. Um, they didn't really say much more than that. I, I guess I guess without having the, the full picture and just purely based on what's been said publicly, I'm not sure what this joint venture working group would do do, to be honest. I mean, Equinor is the operator, an experienced one at that in this type of field. They're the ones with the data. Uh, and as the majority owner and operator, it's their call. You can see um, why Sicker Point would maybe want to put a little bit of distance on this news coming out so soon after the news about Cambo. Uh, and similarly, uh, one of the other partners, One Dias, who is trying to sell its North Sea assets, reportedly. Um, so as I say, it's it's odd to see joint venture partners speaking out against the operator in such a way. Um, I mean, it's good for us for a news cycle, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting one to to see. I, I I don't think there was any really holding back the tide on this, but perhaps it was was perhaps perhaps delay tactics. I don't know. I mean, I thought that second point comment was quite interesting, largely because of its brevity. It was it was quite short but quite to the point, which was. Um, which was quite a, a canny way of putting it out. But yeah. also, I mean, yeah, they can't catch a break at the moment. But I mean, if, where Equinor perhaps, because we'll be expecting their full year results next month. So were they perhaps cognizant of trying to put something out ahead of those? Potentially, we don't really know, but you can maybe assume assume that's the case. Yeah, I, no, I, 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 didn't, I didn't ask them specifically about that, but I think that's probably a fair enough uh, estimation there, Hamish. It's... Um, yeah, I mean, if they they would have to, if it's a one point three billion pound impairment that's going to be in the results, they better at least give some warning. Um, otherwise, it would kind of dampen the entirety of the results. And you see, you see other um, big operators like Shell 
doing that ahead of results as well. Um, and one other thing, just since we're on Equinor, that I'll, I'll mention briefly, and we've popped up a story this um, this uh, this morning. Um, Arne Gertner also spoke about Rosebank, which is their next big project. That's in the west of Shetland this year. Very close by to Cambo, very similar profile to Cambo. And there's a lot of focus on whether or not they're actually going to approve this thing, um, given the, the furor around Cambo and obviously the emissions reduction targets. So Equinor are still targeted for FID on that in May. You know, I'm not generally a gambling man, but if I was, uh, I think that they might just push that back with the OGA's blessing to make sure that they do it right, get the electrification piece right, the emissions piece right. Um, you know, a, a lot, Arne Gertner said a lot of it needs to be, you know, it needs to be a robust option for development. He didn't say because of Cambo, but he said due to the, the North Sea transition deal, those emission reduction uh, goals. Um, so I think this will be very carefully watched and it will be interesting to see what they do. But he said, we will update on a concept select this year. Um, the front runner right now appears to be the Altera uh, NAR FPSO. So one to watch, but uh, we'll leave it there for Mariner. And next up, Ed is looking at Namibia and South Africa focused explorer Asanam. What will the future of the North Sea look like? Which technologies are needed to make the basin fit for purpose in a net-zero world? Energy Voice invites you to join us and a select group of industry leaders to scope out the future of energy development in the North Sea. The virtual event on Thursday the 27th of January will feature two sessions covering the key themes of net-zero decommissioning and transition technologies, drawing on expertise from our partners such as Schlumberger, Baker Hughes and Boston Consulting Group. Join the conversation and hear from the companies and people shaping the future of the North Sea. Register free for our future North Sea event at fns2022.co.uk. So, Ed, new ownership on the way for Asinam. What's the latest with them? Indeed. So, uh, Asinam is uh, so deeply involved in uh, a really sort of up-and-coming part of the sort of African exploration puzzle in, in sort of uh, Namibia and South Africa. There's a couple of big wells that, that started at the beginning of December. Uh, Titelangis, but the Venus well, and Shell's but the Graf well, both very close to each other, both in Namibia's Orange Basin. And these are, you know, potentially really transformative and, you know, the, you know, the potential for sort of, you know, billion barrel discoveries. And so, you know, there's a lot of interest and excitement going in there. Getting sort of ahead of that, uh, those, those sort of results is um, this company, Eco Atlantic, which uh, has, uh, has, has made this move to, uh, to, to, to buy up Azinam, which has sort of neighboring acreage. Um, and it's 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 a very interesting case because uh, Azinam has been sort of working. It's got this sort of uh, numerical model, part of the sort of the Seacrest family, which I'm sure that you're going to shed some light on, Alistair. But they um, had this idea of, about sort of taking part in sort of a number of exploration wells around around the area. And now it looks a bit like um, maybe Eco Atlantic is, is is sort of following a similar model. So I spoke to uh, Gil, the uh, the owner, uh, the CEO of of, of Eco. He was in a, 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 what looked like a very sunny Tel Aviv while I was mm. <laughs> uh, shivering in a, in, a, in a very rainy London. So I was already consumed with jealousy. But he set out a very, very bullish vision of, of the future. So Eco's got a sort of a number of interests, sort of exploration interests in uh, in Guyana and and Namibia and but but clearly he's got plans for more and he's 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 a very uh, very very upbeat guy and so he was saying this is essentially the first step 
in in creating what he saw as a sort of a new sort of exploration company, a new model that instead of uh, having a sort of a number of small companies with sort of small stakes in sort of frontier wells, he had this idea of a sort of a company that had a stakes in a number of exploration wells, which to me felt a bit like the Seacrest model. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you remember any of those presentations, Alistair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, no, it, it, it sounds very similar to the the Seacrest, uh, Seapulse kind of situation. Um, I think, if I, as I recall correctly, they were... Seapulse, at one point, they were kind of fledgling explorer, but they had some very exciting deals with some fairly big uh, companies alongside them. I mean, services firms like Halliburton and Petrofac, putting a name to them as an Orcatalyst, slightly less so, Enquest, slightly less so. But um, yeah, they, they were targeting 4 billion barrels worldwide, I think, at one stage or the other. And it was kind of as similar to what you described with Eco there. Um, you know, they were, hope, they, were, they were essentially drilling a lot of exploration wells, and they were kind of I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm being a bit reductive by saying they were throwing darts at a board and seeing, you know, what hits, but that kind of what it felt like. And if sure enough, if they got one good high-impact well, that may well be enough to tide them over. But I guess for, well, for Seapulse particularly, clearly exploration is very expensive. The oil price crash of 2020, well, they certainly went quiet. I don't know whether they, it actually stopped in, in their tracks. Merce Drilling, we did speak to them at some point, and they said that their deal with them was still alive. But, you know, that was, mm. that was in the end of 2020. We're obviously long past that now. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it sounded like a positive model when it was announced. Um, clearly, it must be very exposed to price fluctuations, ultimately perhaps a, a bit more than than they could chew. But but I, I guess Eco-Atlantic, I mean, you're, you're talking about uh, Africa, you're talking about Guyana, Suriname. I think I saw in the piece, they're talking about London Group's portfolio as well. So this this seems to replicate that to uh, to a degree, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, clearly they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, they're, they're, there's, uh, the Eco team is pretty close to... Uh, to uh, Africa Oil, which is part of the sort of the Lundin Group, and I think you know that they, you know, so there's a there's a sort of a whole new sort of sequence of, of of sort of companies, you know, I suppose Impact is sort of in there, Africa Energy, they're all sort of quite sort of you know they they've all got these sort of quite sort of high potential, high impact wells, but you know as we saw with Azinam, which I think was really sort of the, the sort of the local manifestation, wasn't it? There are difficulties in that, and I think Azinam had made commitments in. Um, I think it was last year that they were going to fund a rig to, to to drill a well on on a, on, a, on a block held by Africa Energy in uh, in South Africa off the off the west coast, and they had they had essentially a deadline of of, of the end of last year, and sort of December the thirty first kind of came and went with you know a sort of a, a remarkable lack of news, and it seems that you know this is you know clearly Azinam kind of hit these difficulties problems. Maybe it couldn't, you know, follow through with those sorts of commitments, and it seems like maybe Eco is in a better position to do it, and you know, maybe it's got that sort of critical mass that can maybe sort of, you know, drive that 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 sort of progress. As you say, like there there is this there is this uh, you know there's a clear sort of uh, exposure to sentiment, isn't there? I mean, we saw how quickly exploration appetite dried up when well when oil prices went negative. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, the, gosh. Uh, to six. <laughs> if, if casting your your minds back to then, you know the 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 the, 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 the drilling figures really just fell off a cliff, didn't they? And you know the 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 
you know, investor appetite shifted so quickly away from those sort of smaller companies that were exposed to to you know frontier exploration and and, and clearly eco is you know on the sort of you know the, the sort of the sharp end of that they're in guyana you know they've had some potentially interesting results they've not had not not had a sort of a slam dunk as yet obviously they've got more plans sort of coming they've got this you know if they if they manage to kind of complete this deal with azinam they've got this this well which they're hoping to drill in in august this year off off south africa which seems fairly low risk. So it, it does seem that, that, you know, there are potential, you can see how the model might work, mm. but also you can see that it's a really, uh, it's, a, it's a high risk game. And, you know, obviously talking to Gil, who, you know, you know very uh, incredibly kind of charismatic and, you know, sort of a, a real believer in, in the game that he's talking. It's, you know, you kind of, you can't help but be really sort of, you know, drawn along by what he's saying. But when you sort of step back and you think there are some, you know, thinking about the the, the costs of, you know, of, of drilling rigs and, and how they are going back up. You know, now we are seeing a return to, 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 to drilling and thinking about the sort of the size of eco, you know, relative to other companies who, you know, Total and Shell are drilling those, mm. uh, those, those two deep water wells in Namibia. That's a serious uh, investment. You know, I think, you know, what is that? Say a hundred million a well, something like that. It's, uh, it's an expensive game. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly... Yeah, it's a, it's it's a it's a big numbers game. So it's it's a really exciting one to watch. And I think you know one of the interesting things that that Gil was talking about was that you know if they do see some success, obviously maybe that there is there are sort of you know deals that you know bigger explorers would would maybe kind of come knocking on his door. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think you know clearly at a point where we're thinking, oh, maybe we do need oil for for longer than we might have thought. There are going to be those companies who will need to find more barrels in the future, and you know, as you were saying earlier about Equinor and, and, and Mariner, you know, the, the, there are these plans for you know, sort of continuing production until say twenty fifty. If there are difficulties, maybe maybe Namibia, maybe South Africa, you know, one one big discovery could be really transformative. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a real sort of sense of potential, uh, but also sort of risk. So it'd be interesting to see if uh, if if Gill can pull off what uh, that Seapal Seacrest idea, maybe sort of stumbled in the execution. Mm, yeah, no, it'd be very interesting to see whether or not they can. Uh... Hit the mark, and uh, we wish uh, Gil and the team all the best uh, with that. But uh, we will park them for now. And next up, we have Hamish uh, telling us about the Great Scottish Renewables robbery. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice live app featuring a personalized feed, and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, Hamish, uh, a war of words over transmission charges in Scotland versus uh, versus England. Uh, what's been happening there? Yeah, it was probably on course to be one of the fiery exchanges in in the Commons this week until <laughs> Thursday, uh, until until Wednesday happened. Um, so. 
but it can take second spot quite nicely. No, no Stephen Flynn was uh, raising the point of transmission charging in Parliament again. He's been one of the kind of most ardent campaigners up here for reform, um, joined with Scottish Renewables, who are also very much calling for change. We have chatted about this before, but just kind of a background on transmission charging. They're fees that developers have to pay uh, based it's kind of a very much a rough overview, but largely based on how far away they are from major urban hubs. So if you are uh, offshore wind developments near the Thames Estuary, near to London, you're likely to receive a fee or receive a subsidy because you are so close to an area of high demands. Conversely, if you're a wind farm up in the upper echelons of the highlands, you're going to have to pay to feed your energy into the grid. And that's largely because you have to, well, more infrastructures, requ- you require more grid infrastructure to get your energy to where it's needed most. Um, it was designed in the 70s, the, the process to basically encourage people to build power stations near to near to cities and near to, near to large urban areas. It, there are now claims that it is wildly out of date with a lot of the best wind resources, wave resources, tidal resources, up in far-flung areas that aren't particularly accessible. So these calls for reforms have been have been kind of going on for the, certainly they're a large part of last year. And, and there was a Scottish Affairs Committee inquiry into the matter in which their conclusion was that this needs to be uh, needs to be changed post haste. Um, but yeah, like I said, Stephen Flynn brought it up in Parliament this week to Greg Hands, and he had some pretty interesting stats that he'd managed to get his hands on as well. So by 2026-27, Scottish generators will have to pay around £465 million a year was the figure Hmm. in transmission charges. So a really substantial fee. And and conversely, um, developments in England and Wales, they'll receive a subsidy of about £30 a year just kind of by the, the very nature of them being closer to your Londons and your Birminghams and the like. Um, and he's, Mr. Flynn said that he'd chatted to uh, one Scottish operator in particular who said that across the lifespan of their project, they're expecting they'll have to pay around a billion pounds in transmission charging. So the kind of salient point in this is that they're worried and Scottish Renewables are worried that this is going to put developers off building wind projects and tidal projects in Scotland because of these extra fees that they're being attributed or being hit with. Mm. Um, and I suppose it's kind of pertinent as well as we await the, the Scotland results coming out next week. Kind of one point that has come up, and this did come up in the Scottish Affairs Committee inquiry as well, is that although this might um, might be a slight barrier to developers and to hitting next zero aspirations, it doesn't seem to be having a large material effect in that there are countless developments going on all around Scotland that don't seem to be too worried about about this pro- uh, problem. Um, and this was one of the points, yeah, it was brought up by a, a person from the University of Strathclyde, I believe he was. And certainly if you look around, kind of even anecdotally, there's if you drive from Aberdeen to, to Dundee or Aberdeen to Inverness, there's a sea of turbines around about. I was down, down south um, mm. for Christmas in, in Essex and Suffolk. And they're kind of very much just smattered around, even though that's in pretty close proximity to London. So whether it kind of the largest wider implications of transmission charging are perhaps disputed in some ways in the sector. But as this kind of as it goes on and with certainly those amounts of cash being uh, being forked out, it would seem that 
I mean, that would seem like a barrier to me, especially for best part of 500 million quid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if if, if what Stephen Flynn is, is citing is, is correct, uh, no reason to think it isn't, uh, you can, yeah, you can immediately see why this would, um, this outdated policy would, would hamper projects here. I mean, on, onshore wind is, is obviously skewed towards rural areas, as you've kind of said there. And we have to think about the islands too in Scotland. I mean, we, we some of our most kind of abundant sources of renewable energy, there's, I mean, there's still, there's still no interconnector uh, with the mainland for the Western Isles. That's a separate and possibly bigger issue at this point. But mm. that's an example, I guess, of where uh, you know serious renewable energy power could be uh, generated, but um, maybe hampered by this uh, this this old policy. Um, and I, I did note, I did note that Greg Hans is uh, kind of he kind of fobbed uh, Stephen Flynn off a little bit with talking about the current government and off-gem reviews, kind of go, looking into this. And, and yeah, you'd have to hope that is going to level the playing field a bit. But uh, yeah, it's it, it certainly doesn't seem to to help the well either government UK or, or Scottish in terms of their renewables ambitions. But if the um, if the if the renewable resources are that much richer in Scotland, right? If the if if the you know the wind is you know sort of blowing offshore so much more, then presumably does that sort of balance out in terms of uh, obviously the the transmission charge will be higher, but. Uh, because the the resource is so abundant, then you would you could you could still come out ahead, right? I mean, I think that's presumably the sort of the calculations that that operators would make potentially, and that's probably why we see projects like Sea Green and and like Beatrice and that going ahead and all these mega projects in Scotland. But I suppose the kind of I mean, Adam Morrison from Murray West, who heads up the Murray West projects, which is. Um, or as as far as we know, still waiting for a contract for difference. He said that that transmission charging is the is the real kind of a issue on which on which getting a CFD is is hinged on because it just adds that extra cost as you're trying to get the price down to secure this subsidy. It adds this extra unnecessary cost that they are trying to trying to cope with. Um, so I, I, yeah, I kind of, I kind of see, I definitely see your point there, Ed, because. There are such abundance of specifically wind up here, but if developers are kind of highlighting it as as such a problem, then it certainly seems as if well, it certainly seems as if it's needs reform at least. And and there are, there are off gem are looking into it, so it's not like they're sitting on their hands. But like I mean, Alice, you mentioned that Greg Hans's comments. He kind of brought up the North Sea transition deal and and things like that. It's almost as if if you cared about that, you couldn't. Be, because you have that, you can't be angry about transmission charging, which doesn't really stack up. But. So, I, so I suppose the the, the the test is going to be sort of Scotland and the results, isn't it? I suppose if 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 you know there there are, there are big numbers going in as we've seen in the past, then presumably that might suggest to Mister Hands that he doesn't need to worry about it. Maybe um, I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I I'm I'm not sure that the I mean there's probably greater generating capacity for offshore wind than there might be for other renewables projects where this will be affected by um so i, I don't think it's a i don't think it, it covers every base but um it, it is an interesting argument and be interesting to see how they play it out i mean if there's a even if there's a perceived disparity energy policy remains quite a quite a touchy one at the moment so um you know even if it's you know even if it's if it balances out if it's perceived to be a disparity and enough noise is made perhaps that'll be enough to to change things it'll certainly be an interesting one to watch on um, what else was discussed um, from Greg Hans and Stephen Flynn, I, I did notice uh, that Stephen Flynn snuck in a cheeky carbon capture and storage jibe in there. Um, 
<laughs> no one's going to forget the the acorn uh, snub um, anytime soon. Um, and that's been covered substantially, but so has the SNP's kind of stance on oil and gas and its cooling stance on oil and gas, with you know, which has been generally seen as uh, a consequence of the team up with the Scottish Greens. So I guess, I guess it's interesting to be in this position where both the Scottish government and the UK government both seem to be both arguing the case for Scotland's energy corner. Um, and you could make arguments, rightly or wrongly, for both of them having done that or not having done that, um, depending on which side of the argument you're looking at. So it, it remains a touchy kind of area. So we'll see what happens. I think there are, it almost seems like they're trying to each kind of pick, well, yeah, picking a side on, on on all these different issues and trying to find so transmission charging on the one side of the argument, but then oil and gas on the other. It, it just kind of that kind of uh, level of division seems to be particularly pertinent in uh, energy policy currently, and I can't see that going away anytime soon. Sadly. Mm. Indeed, indeed. Okay. Well, thanks for that, Hamish. Uh, and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you again to Ed and Hamish for joining me. I've been Elsa Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com Sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.